service of the year. We find ourselves in the book of Numbers in chapter 22. If we were coming up on Easter, then it probably wouldn't be as significant to say that the passage tonight seems a perfect place to be as so much of the Bible easily navigates to the cross of Jesus Christ. But the chapters we'll look at tonight significantly address the Christmas story in a way that really is fortuitous. What we're going to look at tonight is um, unique to the book of Numbers. In fact, it moves away from the characters we're familiar with, um, a distance away, a different perspective, and, uh, and its place in the book is significant but also a little bit mysterious. You see, in the chapters we'll look at tonight, uh, a foreign king, the king of uh, uh, Midianites, there we go, the king of the Midianites, king by the name of Balak, is going to try and do something about this newfound threat of Israel. And so he's going to summon uh, a seer by the name of Balaam, with the goal of getting a spiritual edge in the foreseeable battle. Okay. Israel's on a roll. As we saw the last few weeks, they're starting to have some victories leading up to the land. And as we'll pick up tonight, they are camped at the very borders of the promised land and too close for comfort to the land of Moab and the land of the Amorites. And so... Uh, this whole passage steps away from Moses, steps away from Aaron, and starts to focus in on King Balak and Balaam the seer, but it serves an essential purpose in the book of Numbers. Because as they pull up uh, to this land, in fact, look at verse 1, then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. Beyond the Jordan at Jericho, does that sound familiar? If you know what comes next, although Israel will be here for the duration of Numbers and the duration of Deuteronomy and won't actually start the action until the book of Joshua, their very first foray into the land, their very first battle will be at Jericho. And so now they're positioned, ready for the end of this 40-year parenthetical period and entering into God's promise to take out the land, to take the land for themselves. And so the purpose of these is, uh, is an intriguing one because Balak is looking for a message for himself, and I promise you, he will get one. But these words, as they're recorded here in the book of Numbers, are primarily for the encouragement of Israel on the cusp of the land. It reminds me of a later story in the book of Judges where Gideon becomes the unlikely hero and leader of the armies of Israel. And he's about to go to war and he's not feeling really good about the possibilities. He started with a pretty decent showing of this volunteer army that Israel you know, shows up and they're at the front lines and God says, no, Gideon, that's too many men. And he begins to pare it back and pare it back until all that Gideon has is this tiny army of soldiers. And so he's 
noticeably nervous the night before the big battle. And God says, Gideon, I want to show you something. I want you to sneak down quietly across enemy lines into the camps of your enemy. And so he quietly and probably while shaking sneaks into the enemy camp and he hears this conversation that two warriors on the other side of the fence are having. And one of them says, I had the strangest dream last night. I dreamed that a loaf of barley rolled into the camp and hit my tent and the tent was knocked over. And the other one, without missing a beat, goes, well, clearly that loaf of bread is Gideon and his armies and that means they're going to win the war. He hears of his victory in the mouth of his enemies. That's how compassionate God is with his cowardice, which at this point is longstanding and consistent. In the same way here, Israel is at the gates, on your marks, if you will, ready to enter in, and in, uh, instead of summoning a prophet or giving Moses another, thus saith the Lord, he lets them in on what's going on, once again, on the other side of enemy lines, how the other people are feeling, uh, what's going on with them. In other words, these... Uh, these oracles of Balaam are significant because they solidify, in the mouth of an enemy, they solidify the future of Israel. And so let's begin again in chapter 22, verse 1. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho, and Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Remember the victory a few chapters ago. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that's around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And so they're in dread and they're in fear and they look at this thing coming and they go, Okay, something has to be done because we're in danger. Now, there's an irony to this danger. For Moab, not so much for the Midianites, but for Moab, their fears are unfounded. Listen to the words of the book of Deuteronomy chapter 2. Here Moses is speaking to Israel, giving them their marching orders before they enter into the land. And specifically, he addresses the Moabites in chapter 2. And this is what he says in verse 9. Moses says this. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given it to Ar, to the people of Lot, for a possession. And so Moab's land is actually protected because of their relationship, because of their ancestor, Abraham's cousin, Lot. And so their fears here are unfounded. Now, like I said, the Midianites is another story, but nonetheless, uh, it's a good reminder here of the fact that there is a difference between what fear does in our life and the foundation of those fears. Spurgeon famously said that worry does not rob tomorrow of its troubles. It merely robs today of its power. And that's, that's where Balak is at. He doesn't really know the future, but he fears nonetheless. And so he does 
all he can think of to do. And so, verse 4, Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that's around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amwa, and called him, saying. Do you notice there that it says that Balaam's from Pethor, and then it says which is near the river? This river is so significant, it doesn't have to be named. It's just the river. In fact, it's one of the few ancient rivers from this part of the world that you know. It's the river Euphrates, okay? Because Pethor is in what we know later on in the story of, of the Bible as Babylon, okay? Now, side note, it's pretty far away. It's far away from the land of Canaan. It's far away from the land of Moab. As he will send people to travel, we're talking about a 400-mile trek, okay? So I want you to notice as we get into this that Balaam has a significant reputation. This isn't somebody in Moab's own kingdom. This isn't one of the Midianites or one of their near neighbors 400 miles away, okay? 20 days of travel we're talking about on foot. That's how well-known Balaam was. That's how good he was at his job. And what was Balaam, no, Balaam known for? Verse 5, sent messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amwah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I'll be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed, okay? And so what Balaam is known for is proclaiming blessings and cursings. And so he's hoping to gain an edge in battle through the curse of Balaam. And it's worth pointing out here that there's a difference between a prophecy and a blessing or a curse, okay? A prophecy is a statement, but a, a blessing or a curse, in the, in the Hebrew mind, it does something. You're not just saying something about someone, you're actually enacting something over someone. And so you may remember, we looked at the blessing of the Aaronic priesthood. The Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. That's not just empty words or a reminder of the fact that God will bless his people, it is actually a blessing. It carries spiritual freight. It accomplishes something. And so Balaam is known as a man who has some sort of spiritual ability to make a difference through his words, both for blessing and for cursing, and clearly with some sort of success because his reputation, he's known far and wide. And as we'll see, Balak is willing to reward him handsomely for the service. So, verse 7, The elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message, and said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. And so they come, and they come with an entourage, right? They don't just send any messenger. They send elders of both of their people. And they send an initial fee just for the bid, just for the assessment to see if he'll take the job. And so Balak says, stay here and I'll see what the Lord would have me do. 
Now there's an intriguing note here. You may notice there that the word Lord, the one in the mouth of Balaam here, is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the way that our English Bibles tell us that the word here is the tetragrammaton, okay? This four character, sometimes rendered Y-H-V-H, that is a stand-in for the name of God. Sometimes we call him Yahweh, sometimes Jehovah, depending on what you do with the vowels between those four consonants, okay? What's significant about that is Balaam, at least in the story, seems familiar with the name of the God of Israel, okay? Now, it may be that that is an editorial note so we understand and we track what's going on here. It's going to be clear that Balaam lives in a world of many gods, that he's a polytheistic believer, and the way that he operates is to engage with particular gods for a particular purpose. Okay? So either he knows that his business is with the God of Israel because he wants to address the people of Israel, or the editor here is helping us to understand that God is interfering in a process. Okay. We have significant reason for, to believe that that might be the case. There is an occasion where Saul has uh, basically put himself right out with the God of Israel, but he needs some advice. And so he goes to a soothsayer, someone who speaks to the dead, to summon Samuel who's been dead for some time, to ask for his advice. And it's a weird story if you read it. He goes to this woman known as the Witch of Endor, and she summons the ghost of Samuel, and he has this conversation. And it really goes against the grain of how the Bible understands the afterlife, not to mention the clear commandments God gave Israel about going to those who speak to the dead. But what it appears to happen is that God overrides the process, interferes because he is in charge. And that's definitely, as we'll see, the case here. But either way, he sleeps, he inquires, and he dreams. And what does he dream? He dreams, as God speaks to him in verse 9, God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people's come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I'll be able to fight against them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. In other words, he gets a hard no. And behind that hard no, he gets a simple reason. There's no chance of you being able to curse them because their blessing is secure, right? Now, Balaam may not, in fact, I would assume he's probably completely unaware of the history with Abraham, but this should remind us of the words that God spoke to Abraham when he called him out of the land of Ur. When he said, I will bring you to a land, what did he say? He said, I will bless you. I will bless your descendants. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God's plan for Israel is one of blessing. And he says that that's irreversible. That there's no changing of that. And so he says no. And so the next morning, verse 12 Sorry, verse 13, Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, 
Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Now keep the, keep the distance in mind. Okay? They travel all the way back. A month plus has passed at this point just so they can say he won't come. Okay. And so Balak hears this response, verse 15. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these, and they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me I will do. Come, curse this people for me. And so Balak ups the ante. He sends a bigger entourage this time. He makes broader promises. In fact, he effectively writes a blank check here. Did you catch that? Anything you say to me, I will do. Okay? He's basically saying, I will make this worth your time. Please come. But, verse 18, Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or to do more. Okay, that should be the end of the story. That should be the end of Balaam's speech. He basically says, look, the answer's been given. It's not going to change, and there's nothing I can do against the answer. But notice what he adds here in verse 19. So you two, please stay here tonight that I might know what more the Lord will say to me. Okay, that's intriguing, isn't it? God gives a clear answer. Balaam gives a clear answer. Balak comes up back to deny that answer. Balaam gives a clear answer again, and he goes, but let me double check. Why? Because Balaam doesn't want to lose out on the extreme profit. This is the job of a lifetime. And he wants to go, well, maybe, maybe I can twist God's arm. Maybe I can change his mind. Maybe I'll catch God in a better mood today, right? It's difficult for us to understand. But notice what happens next. Verse 20, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. Now, you might be familiar with this story. Just in case you are, forget it. Go back, as we often encourage ourselves to do, and read this as if for the first time. Except you're not reading it for the first time as a 21st century American. Read it as the first time as the nation of Israel hearing this story. Remembering that when God says they are blessed so they will not be cursed, and reading that and nodding along and going, yes, that's right, that's exactly what God has said. Imagine the double take that comes when it seems like God has changed his mind. There's restrictions, there's limitations, but he still allows him to go. It makes it look like maybe Balaam's making some progress here. What's going to happen, right? This is one of the better crafted narratives in all of the Old Testament. You should feel the tension of Where is this story going to go? Now, let me just add one more layer to that. How does Balak feel about this whole thing? He believes that God's mind can be changed. 
Balaam started a position where he believed God's mind couldn't be changed, but now Balaam's mind is changing. That is the big tension of this story, okay? And that's what sets us up for the next scene in verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Wait, what? Now, we've got to read that carefully, because there are some places where God tells someone to do something, and then the way that they do it angers God. Right? Can you understand what I'm talking about? Where God gives a command, and although they keep it, they keep it in the wrong way. But that's not what it says here. It doesn't say here that Balaam went rubbing his fingers and dreaming of gold. It doesn't say that he was slightly too eager. It doesn't say that he was already preparing a script that Balak would like to hear so that he had extreme payout. It just says he went. And then it says that his anger was kindled because he went. God's anger was kindled because Balaam did what he told him to do. What is going on here? You see, one of the ways we can read this is that God is somehow changing his mind back and forth. That Balaam won the argument and he gives in and then he has a night to think about it and he goes, wait a minute, I'm the living God. How dare he think? And then he's angry, right? It can read like that. Now, I'll just point out to you in advance That when Balaam does begin to proclaim, one of the statements he's going to make, and I quote, is, God does not change, nor does he relent. Okay? So that's probably not the best way to read this story. What this is really about is not, is not about God who changes his mind. It's about Balaam who refused to. Right? He doesn't allow God to change his mind. He keeps pushing. And so God lets him go. It reminds me of what Paul says in the letter to the Romans in chapter 1. He says this repeatedly in Romans chapter 1, talking about where we as human beings have gone wrong, and he says, therefore God gave them over. He let them go. But when you watch, what happens from that giving over? He gives them over to a debased mind and the doing of shameful things, and that is what leads, read back in verse 19 of chapter 1, to the righteous wrath of God. He lets them go and walk the way they want to walk directly into his anger. What's happening here is somewhat similar, and I'll just remind you, okay, that the same God who sets an angel in front of Balaam is also going to let the donkey speak so that Balaam isn't killed by the angel. Okay. Remember here that God is completely sovereign, and that's the point. He lets Balaam go, but Balaam also needs to learn a lesson. And so there's this, there's this scene, and what we have is Balaam traveling by donkey on this long, you know, 20-plus day journey, on the way to do only what God has told him to, but at the payroll of an enemy of Israel. And so as he's on his way, there's this angel standing as his adversary. And if you're curious, the Hebrew word there is one that's familiar to us. It's the word Satan. Okay. Now, here, it doesn't mean that the angel is Satan, but that's the animosity in this relationship. That's the enmity in this relationship, as this angel stands in the way. And so, 
verse 23, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And so he's traveling down the road. There's an angel barring the way, as we'll see, with a sword. The donkey can see the angel, and he goes, this is a bad idea, and he gets off the road. He defers to the angel, okay? Um, Now, already there's some irony there in there brewing. What is the title of Balaam? What is his job? He's a seer. But this donkey sees better than he does, okay? The donkey is aware of the danger he's in. Balaam is unaware. Okay. And so, look at how Balaam responds. End of verse 23, Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled. Does that phrase sound familiar? Where did this passage begin? And God's anger was kindled. Okay. The author is intentionally using the same verbiage. Balaam's anger was kindled, and what does he do? He struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, Now, let's just deal with a side note here. This is one of those stories that for many people renders the Bible along with Grimm's fairy tales or other stories as just being ridiculous because here we have a talking animal, okay? What we need to keep in mind is the uniqueness of this happening. Once again, if you are a Jew reading in the days of Moses this story and hearing it Uh, read aloud, when this happens, is it something you expect to happen? Is it normal? Do you go, oh, of course, the animal's talking, right? No, that's the surprise factor. The only other record in the entirety of scriptures where there's a talking animal, not in a vision or a prophecy or anything like that, but on the live stage of human history, is in the Garden of Eden with the serpent, and we would all recognize that that categorically stands alone as something different, as something unique than this. This is an everyday donkey, and it specifically says here that the Lord opened his mouth. Not the donkey. The Lord did. Now, here's another thing you're probably missing. The Lord opened his mouth is a primary phrasing of what God does in the mouth of a prophet. In fact, it's one of the phrases that will be used for Balaam himself, and the Lord opened his mouth. Okay. Once again, there's parallels being drawn, and although Balaam's not going to get it very quickly, we should be seeing that, that Balaam is the ass in this story. Okay. And so in the same way that God opens the mouth of the donkey, that's what's going to happen in the oracles. But for now, notice this. The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you've made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. Now, two things. One, here we get a clear idea of how angry Balaam really is. He's so angry, he's not flabbergasted at all. He's arguing with a donkey. Okay? He just gives a clear answer. He says, you don't understand why I'm angry? Three times now you have disobeyed. And then he says, I wish I had a sword so I would kill you. 
Now, there Balaam's speaking beyond his knowledge. Remember, he doesn't know the angel is there with a sword so he can kill Balaam. But nonetheless, we're getting the significance, the parallels. And so notice verse 30, the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Now, that's the end of this conversation. The reason why it's funny is because the donkey wins. He actually calms Balaam down and Balaam goes, you're right. I don't know why I didn't trust you. You've always been good to me, right? That's what lays behind this simple statement of no. But notice verse 31. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed down and fell on his face. Okay. And so, if you will, the miraculous thing about this story is not that God speaks through a donkey, it's that God is going to speak through Balaam. And we see here three times the angel stands in the way and limits his progress, threatens his life. We're going to go on and we're going to see three separate times where Balak will finance the cursing of Israel at different places and all of this is tying together to make a perfect Hebrew narrative. But the significance of this is that God is going to say great things through an awful man like Balaam. Okay. He's going to use him, but Balaam is not going to use God. He's not going to be able to manipulate him like he could the other gods, because this is the God, the living one. Okay. And so Balaam gets this lesson up front. In verse 32, the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had turned aside from me, surely now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it's evil in your sight, I will turn back. Okay. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with these men, but speak only the words that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. What we see here is pretty clearly an attitude adjustment. This, I will go and turn back, is different than the I cannot come with you, but let me pray about it a bit more. Right? Here, he's willing to surrender the whole thing that puts him in the appropriate place. That makes him understand the relationship he's in as the story moves forward. And so, speaking through the angel, God says, no, go. But he reminds him again, but only say the things that I tell you. Verse 36. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, the extremity of the border. Now, why does it add that? It's once again about honor, okay? This is a king, and he doesn't sit in the palace and wait for Balaam. He goes to the very edge of his land and meets him and walks him all the way in. Okay, it's, it's honor. Verse 37, Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I've come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Huzoth. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep, and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. 
And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal. And from there, he saw a fraction of the people. So notice there's sacrifices involved. And uh, we'll see that in just a second. And what's really interesting is we have archaeological finds of similar practices for similar offices. Other seers who also offered several sacrifices on separate altars for this type of an occasion. It's actually striking the parallels between the archaeological writings we found that date from this time and place and the behavior of Balaam here. Okay? He may be the best in his job, but he's not the only operator. Okay? So there's a way to these things. And we're going to see that the Bible uses it. But the second thing I want to point out is in verse 41, where it says that from his vantage point, where he takes him, he can only see a fraction of the people. Okay? Based on some of these other archaeological writings, all these other things that we've discovered, the reason is because he doesn't want Balak to be overwhelmed. In other words, he just needs to see a sliver of them so that he has some sort of spiritual tactical advantage. And so in advance, Balak has come up with a vantage point where Israel can be seen because you know that phrase, the evil eye, right? In the ancient world, a curse involves seeing, okay? But just a smidgen, not all the people, only a portion. And so they're all set up. Chapter 23, Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to me, and whatever he shows me I will tell you. Okay, and so we see here they have two different roles. It's Balak who's putting on the offerings, and Balaam who goes to hear the oracle. Okay, and once again we have, we have evidence that this was routine practice for this type of thing. And so he goes up to a bare height, verse 4, God met Balaam, and Balaam said to him, I've arranged the seven altars, and I've offered on each altar a bull and a ram, and the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. Now I want you to notice the clarity of that phrasing, that God put a word in Balaam's mouth, right? It's, it's idiomatic. But the idea here is the words that are about to come out of Balaam's mouth are not his. They're God's, okay? He's not paraphrasing. Uh, he's, he's not um, ad-libbing. What he's about to say is exactly what he was told to say. No more, no less. That's significant, okay? Verse 6, he returned to him and, be, uh, and behold... He and all the princes of Moab were standing behind his burnt offering, and Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him, Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Now, notice Balaam does not curse Israel here, far from it, but he also doesn't bless them. He just describes them and then says, I wish that my fate was going to be like theirs. 
And so he challenges this, and there's a few things to note here. First, he once again sets the standard. In his proclamation, he says, I cannot curse who Jehovah has not cursed. I can't even bless who God has not blessed, right? He lays that out, he makes it clear, and then he, when he looks at Israel, he refers to them as a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. And we've been emphasizing over and over again Israel's call to be separate. Even Balaam sees that. That if you're going to describe the nations of the world, you can put all of them categorically together save one. This one's unique. This is not like the other jobs that Balaam has been assigned to. And then notice verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part? Now, Balaam, once again, probably doesn't know the promises given to Abraham, but by using dust there, he's referencing them nonetheless, right? What was the promise? That your children shall be greater than the dust of the earth, right? That's the promise that was given to Israel. And then when it says, or number the fourth part, a fraction of Israel. And then he makes this proclamation, let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his. He goes, when I look at the future of Israel, I like what I see. In fact, my hope is that my end will be like theirs. Now, Balaam doesn't really mean that. Not in the way that's going to change his life. We're not witnessing a conversion as Balaam suddenly gets it and realizes things as they are. In fact, we know about Balaam's end. Would you like to hear it? We find this later in the book of Numbers in chapter 31. What is the end of Balaam the seer? In chapter 31, verse 7, they warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, and the five kings of Midian, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Baor, with the sword. He dies with these enemies, the Midianites, okay? As they are conquered, so also is Balak, or sorry, so also is Balaam killed. But nonetheless, he recognizes what's coming for Israel is good, and that's the end of his first oracle. And so Balak's response, verse 11, Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. Now, like I said, that's semi-inaccurate. That will come. But at this point, he's just, he's just recognized what Israel is. He's not proclaimed good things for Israel. He's just proclaimed the recognition that Israel is good. Verse 12, he answered and said, Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Now, you would think at this point that Balak would get the message, right? That this is unfruitful and that this doesn't work through manipulation. In fact, let's take a pause and recognize how most of the ancient world saw their religions. Okay. The Bible proclaims that God is wholly other, completely outside. That there is creator and there is creation. But all of the ancient world, although they believed that the gods, in whatever their system was, were involved in creation, didn't really see them as outside of creation. They saw them as something that could be manipulated and maneuvered. And so the goal was to please and appease the gods so that you got the outcome you were after. Okay? So, for example, they're in Baal Peor. 
That's where they are. This is a land that worships the god of Baal. Baal was a fertility god. And there were certain ways to maneuver Baal so that he would bring a good harvest outcome. Okay? And so you would manipulate God to get what you wanted. That was the primary basis of most ancient and most polytheistic religions. And so that's how Balaam, or sorry, how Balak is used to thinking of things. And he's looking at this and going, wait, the way this is supposed to work is we just go through the right steps, we do the right rituals, and then I get what I want, right? It goes against the grain of who God really is in the Bible, but Balak has a hard time learning the lesson. In fact, even at this point, look at verse 13. Balak said to him, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You'll only see a fraction of them. You'll not even see them at all. Then curse them from me for there. He goes, maybe we need a change of scenery. Maybe if it's a different time, in a different place, with a different view, then I'll get the outcome that I want. Okay. And so they moved. Verse 14, he took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pigsa, and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And Balaam said to Balak, stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus shall you speak. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Now, I can't resist pausing here for just a section. Second. Effectively, Balaam is currently employed to lecture Balak on why this isn't going to work, <laughs> right? And so the second one builds on the first. The first one says, I can't curse what God hasn't cursed. I can't bless what God hasn't blessed. And here he says, do you not understand who we're dealing with here? Look at what he says. God is not a man that he should lie, right? Balaam and Balak are used to dealing in deceptions, they're used to dealing in manipulations and false speech and these types of things. But God is not like them. And that's the primary problem with polytheistic religions, with ancient religions. They make gods in their own image. And they go, well, if I was God, then these things would appease me. But the Bible lays out a very different thing. God is not a man, not like a man. And even though we are created in his image to reflect him, he stands above and beyond. That's why Isaiah can say our thoughts aren't like his thoughts. Like the heavens is above the earth, so are God's thoughts above ours. And so this distinction is made. And then notice next, has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? Okay, this is about God's faithfulness about the fact that he's a keeper of promises. Now, this is somewhat intriguing because the problem here is that Balak doesn't know the God of Israel. And so he's getting a lesson. Much like Pharaoh did in the book of Exodus, here Balak is coming to understand who God is, even if he doesn't like what he hears. Verse 20, Behold, I received a command to bless. He is blessed and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob. Now, if you have an older translation, it might say he has not beheld evil or even sin in Jacob. The word there for evil is incredibly broad. 
And we've read the book of Numbers up to this point, so we know the Lord has beheld plenty of evil in Jacob. But sometimes the word, like it's used in the book of Jonah, talks about evil coming upon a place. In other words, misfortune, disaster, those types of things. That's what this word actually means in this context. He's not beheld misfortune in in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. Now that says something very significant, okay? Baal was off and distant, but God was in the midst of Israel. And then it says a shout of a king is among them. Here we see Balak, the king of Midian, or of Moab, excuse me, and the leaders of Midian, but who's the king of Israel? God himself. That's the point of this, that right from the midst, God is speaking, that he, the shout is a, of a king is among them, um, which probably should make us think of militaristic victory, right? That's, I mean, a shout of a king is not just a really loud leader, right? It's this proclamation of victory, of conquering. Verse 22, God brings them out of Egypt. Remember what Balak thought? These people came out of Egypt. No, there's a clarification here. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of a wild ox. Do you remember Balak's concern in the beginning? They're like this wild ox and they're just going to eat up us like grass. And he goes, you want to know where their power comes from? You want to know where their strength is? The horns of this wild ox is God himself. Verse 23, for there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel what God has wrought. Behold, a people, as a lioness it rises up, and a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And so remember, remember what these words involve, not just statements of truths, but proclamations. And basically, he says here, Israel's going to eat you alive. Israel's got the victory like a lion against any prey you can pick, a lion versus a lamb. That's the battle that you're, that you're signing up here for, Balak, verse 25. And Balak said to Balaam, don't curse them at all and do not bless them at all. What this literally says is, what this literally says is, stop cursing them is, if this is what you mean by cursing. Okay? That's the idea here, verse 26. But Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell you all that the Lord says that I must do? He did, by the way. He told him that multiple times now. And Balak said to Balaam, come now, I'll take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them from me there. Okay. His belief system is deep-seated. He still really believes that in some way he can contend and win out with enough sacrifices, you know, and enough finagling that he can win out against the God of Israel. And so come now, I'll take you to another place. Perhaps it'll please God. Verse 28, so Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. So just like the three times with the donkey, we also see that in some ways, Balak is now like Balaam, right? Stubborn and not seeing what's right in front of him. And literally walking into his own destruction because every time these oracles get worse, 
In fact, there's going to be bonus oracles in the second that will seal the deal. But first, the third oracle in verse 24. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to look for omens, but set his face towards the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. In other words, Balaam realizes now that there's no reason for him to only see a portion of the people. So he gets a full frontal encounter with all there is to Israel. And let me remind you that this, for any person, would probably be an overwhelming thing if you weren't expecting it. Okay? The people of Israel is a nomadic tribe that is two million strong. Okay? That's the population of the city of Seattle doubled inside the city limits people without a country, without a land, just sitting there in the wilderness. This is a striking thing, but he looks them fully, sees them camping tribe by tribe, and then notice what it says here, the Spirit of God came upon him. Do you notice the difference in the language? What's been happening so far is somewhat according to the script. Here, it's a different experience. It's not It's not God placing the word in his mouth, but he is overwhelmed by the Spirit. It's similar to what happens with Saul. After Saul is anointed king and he begins, the spirit of God comes upon him and he begins to prophesy like one of the prophets, right? God completely takes over, consumes Balaam. And this, what happens here is significant because it's not like the blessings and cursings. It's not a proclamation of who God is. This is outright prophetic. Here, Balaam becomes a prophet of God, not just a seer of Babylon. And so, verse 3, he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. Sound familiar? Right? That theme has been running through this whole passage. The seer now sees, verse 4, The oracle of him who hears the words of God and sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob! Your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Now pause. In the land of Israel, cedars grow on mountains and not by rivers. Okay? There's two possibilities here. It may be that the word we translate cedars is a broad term, not just for the cedar, but for other pine-like trees. Okay? But more likely here, he's making a significant statement. If cedars are so strong and powerful on the mountains and in these high places, imagine one by the river. Okay? It's a picture of strength and abundance. Verse 7, water shall flow from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. In other words, he's picturing here the fruitfulness of Israel and their, uh, their actual offspring as if a guy is returning from the well and his buckets are just overflowing with water, okay? His king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. Now, Agag here is an interesting reference because we haven't met an Agag yet and we won't for hundreds of years, okay? It's under the monarchy of Saul, when Israel has its first king in Saul, that King Agag, who's a leader of the 
See, this is why I should take notes sometimes. Let's just turn to 1 Samuel, shall we? 1 Samuel 15. I guess the fact that I knew where we were turning shows I don't need notes. But nonetheless. Verse 1, Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over the people of Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Do you notice how we just came full circle? When did Amalek oppose Israel? Back in the book of Numbers. But notice what it says, verse uh, 3. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman and child and infant and ox and sheep and camel and donkey. And Saul does this, except he spares a king whose name is what? Agag. And we come to one of the funnest verses in all of the Old Testament because Samuel has to pick up after Saul's mess. And so he hacks Agag to pieces before the Lord. That's what it says later in the chapter. That's the first time we encounter an Agag, and so it is possible here that this would have been a meaningless statement to the people of Israel, but I think that's probably not the case. There are many different nations around Israel who have names for their kings that aren't actually names but titles. Think of Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh's not just a popular name in Egypt, okay? All the kings of Egypt are named Pharaoh. In the same way, there's Abimelech. Abimelech uh, is a king who encounters Abraham, and then we encounter another another Abimelech later in the life of Isaac. They're both kings of the same place, okay? And so we assume that Abimelech is actually the royal title, okay? In the same way, I would suggest here that the Amalekites have a king named Agag, because that's their word for king, okay? But nonetheless, there will come a time where the Amalekites get what God has promised coming, and even their king Agag won't be able to stand in the way. But it is intriguing, that touch point with 1 Samuel 15, because that is where Saul loses the reign. That is the first open door for King David. And when we go back to Numbers and we come back to this third oracle of Balaam, we find we find the promises of David. So, returning back here to chapter 24. Verse 8, God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of a wild ox. He shall eat up the nations and his adversaries. He shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched and he lay down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him up Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. If you go back through these oracles and you follow and you look for Balak and his people in the oracles, we're moving closer and closer into the bullseye. Things are getting worse and worse. Because who fits the description of those who would curse Israel? Balak. And so now it's proclaimed, just as it was in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, those who curse you will be cursed. This is God's version of I'm rubber and you're glue, right? There's going to be a direct response to Balak's enmity to Israel. It will be his undoing. 
In verse 10, Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. Do you hear the rhythm there? Right? Remember the donkey story? That's where he struck. His anger was kindled. Here he strikes his hands together. It's a sign of exasperation, right? He's had it. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore now, flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back for honor. He says, this Lord that you keep talking about, it's his fault you're not getting paid. Go away. Verse 12, and Balaam said to Balak, did I not tell your messengers? All the way back at the beginning, before I came here, did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me if Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold? I'd not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. And now behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. He says, this one's on the house. Before I leave, and this is the final oracle. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the word of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes covered, uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. For the most part, he's been focusing on the the near future of Israel, things that are going to happen in this generation, right? He's going to come through like a wild ox. He's going to conquer like a lioness. And now he says, but this last thing I see, this is off in the distance. Now, if you read the prophets in the Old Testament, you will consistently find a moving from near prophecies to far prophecies. So, for example, in the book of Daniel, the things he deals with initially are all things that are happening in his lifetime and the generation to follow. But the last half of the book is moving way beyond that. The same in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters are all talking about Israel's current circumstances. What's going to happen in the next hundred years? And then suddenly it takes a big leap forward. Why? Think of it this way. The people who are reading the book of Isaiah read the first 39 chapters and go, yep, that happened, that happened, yeah, that happened too. All of these things we've seen come to life in our lifetime. It validates the far. And so we see this pattern consistently of moving from near to far, but now he's looking in the distance, and what is it that he sees? Specifically, it says here, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now remember that in Hebrew poetry, parallelism is significant. We say the same thing in different words. We say it twice. And so here, a star out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel. Jacob and Israel are synonymous. Star and scepter are synonymous. And it may be that the word scepter should be translated comet here because it's the same word in Hebrew. But I would say significantly that's not the case. What he's recognizing here with his words is a coming king and a star is a common symbol in that area, in that time, for royalty. Okay. And so he sees a coming king. He sees one who is to come and it says specifically here, it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. Now there is a people that the Bible doesn't address 
but Egyptian records do, that this may be referring to, but it's actually just the Hebrew word that's used earlier for the Sethites. Okay? So it may be talking about all those who are not Israelites but come from the line of Seth. Okay? In other words, everyone in the area. He says in verse 18, Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. He sounds like a commentator in a sports game. Verse 19, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. And so he sees here a coming king, and it may be King David. But it's intriguing that rabbis writing after the lifetime of David started to look forward to another king. And they started to resonate with this idea of star. Maybe you've heard of the leader of Israel, Bar Kokhba. That's son of the star. Okay? And he was named that by rabbis to tie him to this prophecy. But it seems that what we have here is a prophecy of Jesus. In the mouth of no one else but Balaam, the pagan seer. Now, I told you that tonight it was an interesting place to come for Christmas. Because significantly, when Jesus is born, we find a star speaking of royalty. Right? As these three wise men see this astrological happening, follow it to Jerusalem and say, where's the king? We've seen his star. Right? They see this star and they know what it means. It means the king has come. And so they open up to the scroll of Micah and they say, well, that's supposed to happen in Bethlehem. And so they follow it into Bethlehem and right beneath it they find Jesus. Okay. Now here's the thing. Where are those men from, these three wise men? Okay, don't get confused. We three kings of Orient are is the most biblically inaccurate sentence in any Christmas carol. Nowhere in Matthew does it say that they're kings. And also, we think of the East as the Orient, as in Asia. The Bible never does. It thinks of Babylon. Now, who do we know who's from Babylon? Balaam. But there's lots of stars. There's lots of astrological happenings. Why did the Babylonian astrologers know it when they see it? Why did they come for that star? Well, interestingly enough, in the book of Daniel... Daniel finds himself in the school of the astrologers. In fact, he saves their lives because he can interpret a dream that none of them can. And later in the book of, the da- uh, book of Daniel, there is the only chronological prophecy in all of the Bible for when the Messiah will come. The prophecy that we sometimes call the prophecy of 70 weeks. It says, once Israel is restored under Artaxerxes, 469 or 463 sevens weeks It's all going to come together, and then comes the Messiah. Remember that Daniel writes that as one of the Babylonian court astrologers. Okay? They know, not because of astrology, but because God is proactively working through Daniel and his role, and all the way back in Balaam, and he he takes this oracle home. Okay? We've seen constant proclamations tonight of the sovereignty of God. But it's in Matthew chapter 2 that it comes to fruition. Earlier in one of these oracles, God said, Do I say I'll do anything and not bring it to pass? 
And we sit in seats thousands of years later going, that's true. We've seen that to be the case. Let's finish this oracle, verse 20. Then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. First among the nations, how? Now, it may be that Amalek, remember, these are the ones that the people complained were like giants and tied all the way back to the Nephilim. It may be rooting back there, but it actually may be the first ones to stand against Israel because they were the first ones to fight Israel. Remember that raiding party that came through? He says, but they're coming to an end. Verse 21, he looked on the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, enduring is your dwelling place and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Asher takes you away captive. Who's Asher? One of the tribes of Israel, right? He gets real specific here. Verse 23, he took up his discourse and said, alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships for, shall come from Kittim and shall afflict Asher and Eber and he too shall come to utter destruction. Okay. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. So, remember, reading this is Israel, like Gideon overhearing the night conversations. The encouragement that comes here, even our enemies have been told by God himself what will come to pass, and it will be in our favor. Victory is intimate imminent. The God who keeps his promises will keep his promises. This is a tremendous high note in the book of Numbers, but like every high note we've seen, it's followed by a fallout. Look at the opening verses of the next chapter. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These are the ones that no one can curse. These are the ones that God sees no destruction coming upon. And what are they doing? sleeping around. In fact, we get a further description, verse 2. These invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Right? Baal Peor was this place where Balaam starts this whole thing, and now Israel's freely and willingly going in, and not only are they worshiping Baal, but they're engaging in sexual infidelity with their women because sexual practice was part of their worship. And look at what it says in verse 3 as it's tied here to the story we just read. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. One way to read this story, all the chapters we've read tonight, is to be struck that God would use a man like Balaam. And it's worth saying right? We would be in danger of looking at these prophecies and going, man, a prophecy of the Messiah, that is a grade A prophet. This is someone of significance, of holiness, of goodness, and clearly he's in the upper echelon of God's people. No, he's not. God can use a donkey, and God can use Balaam. So we got to watch out for feeling like the evidence of our righteousness or even our standing with the Lord is the way that he's used us. Even Jesus himself warns that there will some who come to him in the last days and say, didn't we cast out demons in your names? Didn't even we even do miracles in your name? And he'll say, depart from me because I never knew you. God's sovereignty means he's fully capable of using his enemies.
But what's even more striking than God can use someone like Balaam is that God can use someone like Israel. There's no pride for Israel to stand on. In fact, when Balaam says earlier on that he sees no evil in Israel, the early rabbis took that as evil as in sinfulness and felt that it was essential so that this wouldn't be misunderstood as Balak's curse working. Right? Because what we find here is the only real threat to Israel is Israel. But there is more to the story. We're told later in the book of Deuteronomy, and then it's affirmed for us in the New Testament, that the, uh, the Moabites didn't just come up with this idea. Balaam did. Balaam goes, hey, look, I know it didn't work out, but I got an idea. All you need to do, the weakness of these people, all you need to do is just send out your most attractive temple prostitutes and have them invite some Jews over for dinner. Everything will go fine from there, I promise. That's why Balaam finds his end with the enemies of Israel, because this is his plot. We're not told that in numbers. We don't find that out until Deuteronomy But here, Israel gets involved in this. In verse 4, The Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Okay, and so this is going on, and there needs to be direct consequences, or there's going to be direct consequences. Verse 6, and behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Notice the difference here. What's happening in the first few verses? Israel's being drawn out into Baal Peor outside of the camp and is idolatrously uh, and infidelitously worshiping Baal. Okay, Here... A man brings one of those women into the camp of Israel, into his own tent, to have sex with her there. And notice the timing. What's going on in the midst of this? It says, uh, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Do you know what that is? That means the whole people is gathered and gone, we have sinned. It's an act of national repentance. And moving through the crowd, excuse me, pardon me, is an Israelite holding hands with a Midianite on a way to his tent to have sex with her. This is brazen. Okay. And so, verse 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Okay. Now, that seems extreme. Right? Here's Phineas, who's the grandson of Aaron. He sees this man go by. He grabs a spear and follows him into their tent, catches them in the act, and runs them both through in a single thrust. In fact, even the rabbis were nervous about this because it, it, it's completely disconnected from the commandment of God. 
right? It looks like a person, just a normal human being, taking the vengeance of God in his own hands. And so they had to come up with and think about how to explain this. But the author explains it for us. Now, first off, we get a note in verse 9. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Okay, so we need to get a picture of what's going on because the author is relatively limited in how he tells this story. And so what's happening is people are consistently dying because of this brazen national act. And while they're trying to stop the plague, here comes another, and it's Phineas's action that ends the death. Now, the problem is, for many of us, we are more shocked and more upset by Phineas's behavior than the behavior of this other Israelite. And I'm, I'm not saying you versus me. I'm saying generally we read the story, and if there's a character that makes us uncomfortable, it's Phineas, not this other man. But I would say that that's one of the problems we have as human beings is that we don't rightly appreciate the consequences of sin. Even, even when it's other people's lives we're putting at risk. We say here, what's the big deal even though it's 24,000 deaths strong? And listen to what it says here about how God felt about Phineas, verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Now, this is actually really striking because just a few chapters ago, Moses wrongly acted in anger and misrepresented God. Here, Phineas rightly acts in anger and represents God, and that is significant. Because once again, we have a tendency to downplay the validity of God's anger. And so what we have left is a a palatable God, a God of love and tolerance who, uh, who would never do anything like hell or judgment or justice. And we could even point to Moses and go, see, Moses is just another religious bigot who's yelling at people. Repent or hellfire or brimstone or these types of things. Now that's a misunderstanding of the story. He didn't rightly represent how God felt about Israel at that time. But here Phineas rightly represents how God feels about sin. In fact, notice what it says, verse 12. Therefore, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. He takes sacrificial language here and he says it's the sacrifice of Phineas that covered the sins of the people. Strong language. Then we get the rest of the records. Verse 14, the name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, the chief of the father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was the... tribal head of a father of the house in Midian. Now, notice here that we have two characters, two examples. Phineas, who's a leader in the tribes of Levi, specifically from the line of Aaron, and then we have 
um, we have uh, Zimri, who's a chief of one of the Simeonites, okay? Not just some average guy, a leader of Israel's own son. One who brings atonement, and the other who brings destruction. And they're just presented here for us. Then finally, verse 16, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, harass the Midianites and strike them down for they have harassed you with their wiles, which they guiled you in the matter of Peor and the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, the sister who was killed on the day of the plague account of Peor. And so here God says, they're going to get what's coming to them. And as we already saw in Deuteronomy chapter two, they do. Okay. But here's the thing. When we come to Jesus, Jesus like Phineas, becomes a sacrifice of atonement. But unlike Phineas, Jesus doesn't come bearing a spear and running through the wicked people. He hangs on a cross and the spear pierces him. And I want to be clear here that the proper response to this is not that should be such a relief that we're not in the Old Testament. It should be more profound than that. It should be, this is the way it should be. That the spear should have pierced our sides. How profound is it that the God who does rightly and does justly and brought judgment fully and completely brought it on his own shoulders in the cross and endured that and that brought about atonement. Listen, the reason why understanding the appropriateness of the wrath of God and the seriousness of sin is so important is one, because anything less than that defames the character of God. And two, because anything less than that reduces the value of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is profound that when God finally sets sin right, he does it not in the wrath of a, of a coming priest like Phineas, but in God becoming man and taking that wrath and drinking it to the dregs on our behalf. I told you, the book of Numbers is chock full of Jesus. And even here in Phineas, we have one who's remembered, but also one who speaks to the one greater than Phineas, who would do something even more zealous and even more profound, not just zealous for the heart of God, although he was, but zealous for us. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd protect us from the sin of Balaam in the book of Jude, in 2 Peter, in Revelation chapter 2, we're exhorted not to fall into the trap of being like Balaam, of being subject to greed, of thinking that we can manipulate you for our own purposes, of having such an encounter with the goodness and the sovereignty of God and then despising it with our actions against you and our actions against the people who you've made in your image. James says that we cannot 
bless God with the same mouth that we curse others. And I pray as well, Lord, that we would see ourselves not merely in Balaam, but in Zimri. That we would recognize the threat we pose to ourselves and the people we love and the severity of the sins that we commit all the time, so often excusing, belittling. And we would recognize that each and every one of them is so significant and such an affront to the living God who is love and goodness and light that Jesus had to die for it. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill us not merely with relief, but with an overwhelming and overflowing love and joy that you sent Jesus and he was willing to die for us. That knowing the depths of our sins was undeterred to take the full weight of the punishment we deserve and freely offer us forgiveness, make atonement for us, Thank you, Lord, that you can use an ass or a pagan prophet or people like us. We pray in Jesus' name tonight. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.